Turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 6. We had been going through Matthew uh, for a period of months, and then we uh, took a detour to cover some other issues for about nine weeks, and now we are returning to the Sermon on the Mount. And we're actually at the very tail end of the Lord's Prayer. So I'm going to reread the whole section on prayer, and then we will zero in on just the last part that remains, which is simply verse 13. So again, please hear this public reading of God's Word. I'm going to start in Matthew 6 in verse 5. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, I do ask that as we focus one last time on our Lord's words in the Lord's prayer, that you would give us insight into how to pray, that You would teach us by Your Spirit, through our mind, informed by this passage, how to better pray in a way that is honoring to You and is for our ultimate benefit and our joy. And I pray You'd be honored in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So as a reminder for what we've covered since it's been, again, about nine weeks since we were here, let's just look back very quickly. Jesus gives us a basic pattern that should set our priorities for when we pray. The Lord's Prayer is not something we have to use as an actual literal format every single time we pray, but it is a wise and helpful format and structure to kind of show us what is most important and what we should focus on when we pray. And this prayer begins with God, as we've heard a few months ago. It begins by calling God our Father who is in heaven. You have both His transcendence in heaven and also His compassion and eminence being our Father. And then you have a request for His name to be hallowed or considered holy and sacred, that people would esteem His name, that people would value His name, that they would not belittle He and His character and His name. Then there's a prayer that God's will would be done right now by us, by others, and also one day perfectly when Christ returns, that His kingdom would come on earth as in heaven. And then there's that prayer for our daily need, our daily bread, that every day we would be dependent on God for our daily physical needs. Then He says, Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Our, our daily failings, our, our daily needs are all brought before the Lord and we ask for forgiveness. And one commentator said, you know, after a petition for forgiveness of past sin comes a request for protection from future sin. 
So after we pray, Lord, please forgive me for the sins I have committed, the very next thing that should come out of our mouth is, and don't lead us into future sin. Help us to avoid future sin. Get us away from those future temptations. Help us to be holy. So let me just say real quick that there can be a tendency amongst evangelicalism, there can be a tendency to say, well, I've prayed and asked God for forgiveness, so I'm good. Do you pray against daily sin? Do you fight against your flesh daily? Ah, I don't know. I'll get more serious about that in the future. But I know I'm forgiven. I've prayed for forgiveness, but are you praying to fight sin? I don't know about that. These two things go together. Someone who truly hates their sin and has been forgiven of their sin has a new nature that wants to avoid temptation and wants to avoid sin. These two things cannot ultimately be separated. So just as we pray for forgiveness daily, we also pray daily that God would not lead us into temptation, but that He would deliver us from evil. I kind of broken the sermon into three kind of large parts, and this first part is just an introduction, but it will take us several minutes to cover. I want to, as an introduction, try to answer three puzzling questions about Matthew 6.13. Some of you may already be thinking about one or more of these questions, uh, even as I was reading the passage, but I want to cover three puzzling questions about Matthew 6.13. The first one's a bit technical, but it's worth mentioning because you probably have thought about it. Where's the line for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever? Amen. I mean, if you grew up praying the Lord's Prayer in a church service, I'm pretty sure you probably grew up reciting or saying, praying that line, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. And if you have a modern English Bible, you probably either don't have that line at the end of verse 13, or you might have it in brackets, which is usually saying not very reliable. And and here, let me just give you a quick word about where that statement came from. You ready for something technical? At 6.30 at night, you are, aren't you? I hope you had the extra cup of coffee here. So, just real quickly… Um, the earliest and best manuscripts, and even the earliest and best manuscript traditions, those representatives that come from the early centuries of the church, the earliest and best manuscripts that we have of Matthew do not have, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, at the end of the prayer. It's not there in the earliest and best manuscripts. It shows up later in later manuscripts, and it shows up in different forms in different links. Different versions of that sentence show up in different places later. Now, I just want to say, the words are not unbiblical. The words do actually come from the Bible, but just they don't come from Matthew. They come from, you ready? You didn't probably know this one. (laughs) Maybe you did. 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 and 11, David prays this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. So the phrase, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory is biblical. It's from David in, in, in 1 Chronicles 29, but it was not originally part of the Lord's Prayer, almost certainly. And the earliest church fathers who commented on this prayer in the second century don't mention this line because they didn't have it in their Bible. It didn't exist at the time. It was added later. And if you're wondering how that could happen, well, how could that line get added later? Here's the best guess from Bruce Metzger, a New Testament uh, critical scholar, uh, scholar of the, of the text of the New Testament. He, he says, the best guess is this. The early church was praying this prayer all the time. And probably in the liturgy, in the service, that line from 1 Chronicles was added to the end of the prayer to kind of give it a more liturgical, formal ending to the prayer. And somewhere along the way, someone actually added it to a copy of Matthew, and that's how it wandered into the later text of Matthew. So, if you're wondering, that is actually almost certainly not originally part of Matthew 6.13, but it is from 1 Chronicles 29. Question, puzzling question number two. You may be like me, you may have wondered, different translations, some will say, deliver us from evil, but I would say the majority of modern English translations say, deliver us from the evil one. Now, which is it? Is it deliver us from evil 
or deliver us from the evil one, Satan. Well, I grant you, it doesn't make an enormous difference of meaning. It's the same basic meaning either way you look at it. We don't want to fall into sinful temptations and evil, but it does seem that the more likely rendering is the evil one referring to Satan himself. Let me just give a few reasons for that. If you flip over to Matthew 4 verse 1, you may remember Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. 4.1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So, he is led into temptation by the devil there, and so that is a clue that the evil one may be in Matthew's mind. Matthew also calls Satan the tempter in Matthew 4.3. But let me, let me add this. Again, this is technical, but I think it's worth making this case briefly. It, there's a parallelism in Matthew 6.13. In other words, the two lines have the same meaning. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Those are not two separate prayer requests. Those are one single prayer request. Do you see how they go together? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And in the Greek, it, okay, it's a little technical here. I don't know how else to say this. The, the definite article, the, does not appear before the word temptation, but the definite article does appear before evil. So in the Greek, it says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil which could easily mean, and, and I think does mean, the evil one. In other words, we're referring to Satan. Elsewhere in Matthew, whenever evil has the word the in front of it, it almost always refers to Satan or another personal being. Matthew 13, 38, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, same phrase, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So in Matthew, the evil or the evil one usually is a reference or often is a reference to Satan. I think it is here as well. And this doesn't prove anything, but Every, and I looked at a lot of different people, every single, this never happens, every commentator said they think it's the evil one, not evil. This is amazing. I looked at a lot of people, they all said the same thing. That, again, that never happens. So, there you go. So, it, it seems like that is the overwhelming opinion. Now, puzzling question number three about this verse. What exactly does temptation mean in this verse? Now you say, that should be obvious. But let me, let me explain something here. I'm borrowing this idea from Kevin DeYoung, but others have referred to this. I think it's pretty clear in the New Testament. The word translated temptation, the word parasmos in Greek, can mean different things in the New Testament. And so it's tricky to translate this word. It appears all over the place in the New Testament, parasmos. And he, here's what it can mean. Number one, this word translated temptations can refer to trials or testings sent from God. Remember in the Old Testament? Genesis 22, God tested Abraham regarding Isaac being offered on the, on the altar. Or even James chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brethren, whenever you face parasmos, testings, trials of many kinds. So clearly, the word parasmos, temptations, can just refer to the testings or trials that God brings us through to show whether our faith in Him is genuine and whether our faith will be strengthened when it goes through the testing period. And by the way, Jesus Himself experienced those kinds of testings those parasmas. He, he, he experienced those throughout his life as he went through many testings, going up even to the testing of the cross. Number two, the word temptations can refer to external enticements to sin, as in from the world or the devil. External enticements to sin. These are not things that came from our own heart. These are things that come from outside of us, things that are suggested to us from outside of us. Ephesians speaks about the fiery darts of the devil. These are ideas, temptations that he shoots into our minds somehow. 
I don't understand how that works in, in any sort of detail, but the, Satan can bring those fiery darts into our mind. We're to extinguish them with the shield of faith, but Satan can introduce these temptations from outside of us. We weren't looking for that. We weren't asking for it. We weren't seeking it. Just all of a sudden, an evil temptation is presented to our mind seemingly from nowhere, and those often are from Satan or from demons, and those are external enticements to sin, the world also. You know, you could be on the internet, something can just pop up in, a, in an ad or on, on the side of the screen. Things just come up all of a sudden. Those are external enticements to sin, and we must resist those. And, and, and Jesus, of course, experienced those. He was tempted at all points, like as, as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus experienced every kind of external temptation you can possibly possibly imagine. And again, his most difficult temptation being, should he flee from the cross or should he die on the cross? And he clearly passed that test through the agony of Gethsemane. Now, number three, that word temptations, parasmos, can also mean internal enticements to sin from within, from our fallen nature, from our flesh. I want to be clear here. The only people who struggle with the internal impulse or enticement to sin are those who have a fallen sinful nature, like you and I. Even those who are born again still have the indwelling sinful nature, Romans 7 speaks about, that we must battle and fight against. So, we struggle with internal promptings and enticements to sin. I want to be very clear here. This is an area in which Jesus' temptations differ from ours because Jesus did not have a fallen sinful nature. He did not have inward impulses to sin like we do. Otherwise, he would be a sinner. He did not have inner impulses to sin. He did not have inner promptings and pulls from within to sin. His, his temptations came from external, from Satan and from the world. So, do you see how this word is complicated? It can mean God testing us with a parasmos, a testing, which is for our good. It could be an external temptation, a parasmos from the devil or the world to get us to sin. And it can be an internal temptation from our own fallen flesh to do what we ought not to do or to avoid doing what we should do. And we see that kind of temptation in James 1 as well. So, what's going on in this particular verse? Well, let's dive in here. Point number two, just kind of in the, the, the main part of this verse, would be lead us not into temptation. What exactly does this mean? Point number two of our message, lead us not into temptation. What exactly does this mean? Well, turn with me to the Garden of Gethsemane. So, Matthew 26. Turn to the right to Matthew chapter 26. I think we get a passage that can shed a little light on what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 26, down at verse 40. This is after Jesus has already prayed, and the disciples, remember, have fallen asleep, and Jesus returns and has to wake them up. And listen to these words, Matthew 26, verse 40. And he, Jesus, came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Well, what does that mean here? I, it cannot mean, I don't think it can mean, that Jesus is asking them to pray to avoid being tested in the next couple of hours. Because no matter what, is Judas coming? Is Jesus going to get betrayed? Are the Roman soldiers going to be there by the hundreds? And are the disciples going to have a question whether they stay with Jesus or go? That test is coming no matter what 
no matter what they pray. Jesus cannot mean pray that the testing not come. The testing's coming for all of them. So what does Jesus mean? When he says pray that you may not enter into temptation, he clearly is saying that you not give in to the temptation that is coming. The test is coming no matter what. The question is, with every test comes the temptation. Have you noticed that? Every time we are put to the test, when a hardship comes into our life, every single time our faith is tested, we are also going to experience some kind of temptation with every test. The temptation will be, do we trust God and do what is right, or do we distrust God and do what is wrong? And that could look like a hundred different things. It could look like doubting God's goodness when something very difficult happens in our lives. And you you think about the um, accumulated amount of suffering in a room like this, if we knew all the details of all the moments of just emotional, physical agony that have happened in this room, if you you knew what that was, it would be overwhelming, the, the, the amount of grief, the amount of sorrow, the amount of pain that has been felt corporately over a lifetime in this room is unimaginable. And when we go through those difficulties, we, ha- we are being put to the test, and when we are tested, we're going to be tempted. And the temptation is, God is not really good. God cannot really be trusted. I must either run from God or turn my anger against God or speak against Him, or whatever it may be, doubt His promises or doubt His goodness, and it can be a very strong temptation in those moments. But we pray, we fight against that temptation, we ask that God focus our eyes back on the cross, where we are reassured that no matter what happens in this life and no matter how painful it is, we know that God loves us because the cross bears abundant witness to the fact that God cares more than we can imagine because He gave His Son for us, and if He gave His Son for us, He is trustworthy, and if He is trustworthy, His promises are true, and if His promises are true, whatever is happening, no matter how agonizing it is, is going to be a testing that turns out for my good, for my strengthening, that my gold will be refined in the fire and it will come forth more pure, more sanctified, more holy, more like Christ. I I have to believe that. We may struggle at times, but at the end of the day, we come forth from the fire clinging to Christ, and and we pass those, those temptations. You know, Earlier on this same night before Gethsemane in the high priest in the upper room discourse, John 17, Jesus said to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're going to be in a world that is hard and challenging and full of temptations. Lord, Father, keep them from the evil one. Don't let them be tempted and give in to Satan's devices. 2 Thessalonians 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. That's comforting. God has promised He is going to establish us and He is going to guard us against the evil one. So turn back to Matthew 6. Let me quote Kevin DeYoung, kind of paraphrasing what this prayer is. DeYoung says it like this, Notice the Lord's prayer does not say, Father, do not tempt me. That is a wholly unnecessary prayer. God is never going to tempt you to evil. God cannot be tempted by anyone, nor does He tempt anyone. So, we're not praying, God, do not tempt me. Rather, it says, do not lead me into temptation. That means, do not allow me to be near the allure of sin. Do not bring me near to the devil. Do not permit me to be in a situation where the enticement to sin will be greater than I can bear. 
Father, don't bring me into a situation where the enticement to sin will be greater than I can bear. That's what Jesus is teaching us to pray. We do not pray for a life set apart from all suffering. We pray for a life set apart from sinning. Another commentator says it more briefly, quote, Father, let us not fall victim to the temptations of the evil one. On the contrary, rescue us from his mighty power. And one more, Don Carson writes, lead us not into temptation, but away from it, into righteousness, into situations where, far from being tempted, we will be protected and therefore kept righteous. We will then be delivered from the evil one. That is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, if there's one thing this petition in the Lord's Prayer is teaching us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, if there's one thing that's teaching us, and I hope we know this, you know what's implied there? We are unbelievably weak left to ourselves. That's why we're praying about this. See, I don't know, I hope this is not you, but there are many people who really do think that by their own sheer willpower, by sheer exertion of will, that they simply can fix whatever's wrong in their life morally. They can just make a plan, commit to it, and make it happen. They don't need any help from outside. They just kind of need a little coaching, and they can make this thing happen. They should make their list, and they can do it, and they can make it happen. I want you to know, my willpower is not the ultimate solution to this. I'm not saying willpower is irrelevant. I'm not saying there aren't moments where you need willpower. You do need willpower. But ultimately, it is a heart issue that only God can fix. And that is why we battle in prayer. We battle in His Word. We battle corporately. We battle, battle when we sing. We battle when we speak truth to each other because there is a cosmic battle going on right now. We may not even be fully aware of it. There's an angelic battle. Angels and demons are actually real. They exist. We don't see them. We don't often experience those kinds of things. But they are real. And there is a cosmic battle going on of which you are a part right now. And your thought processes. The temptations that go through your mind in a day when you're driving, those moments are where a battle is being fought, and you're either being led towards temptation, towards jealous thoughts of a person that have suddenly taken over your mind. You know, you thought, I didn't really struggle like this. All of a sudden, I can't stop thinking about how much I wish I had what this person has. I never even thought about it. Suddenly, this thing captures you, and for a few days, you can't seem to get it out of your mind. Willpower is not the final solution. You might need that, but the final solution is, God, help me with this temptation. Don't lead me into temptation. Please deliver me from these evil thoughts and from the evil one who is tempting me to sin. God, please help me. I cannot do this on my own. I think very often we walk around with a false sense of security. It is very easy to think that very little is at stake. I mean, the horror stories that we've all heard, just to give an, you know, someone commits adultery, wrecks the marriage, damages the children, all these things happen. You look at the story, you see what's happened, and you just grieve over it. Oftentimes, we come into the story when it, when it goes public at the end, and you see this devastation, and you just think, how could that happen? And, and some people very presumptuously and arrogantly think, that could never be me. That's just ridiculous. I would never do that. That person is in serious danger. Because that person is setting themselves up for failure. Paul says, be careful, take heed when you stand firm, lest you fall. 
It's in the very moment when you feel like nothing, I got, I got this, I, I got this handled, I'm good, no problem here. That, at that very moment, you are perhaps most susceptible to temptation. Listen, those disaster stories of wreckage of marriage and devastation of the family, those stories do not start where they end. They start 18 months earlier with an inappropriate conversation that leads into another, into another, into another, into a text messaging conversation that shouldn't be happening, that leads into a meetup that shouldn't happen, it leads to this, 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 this. What happened? We don't realize that we're in a war. Things are actually on the line of eternal consequence. And if we are not vigilant like you would be in battle, like, you know, in battle, you hear a twig snap and you're ready to go, right? You're like, there's something, we, we got to get ready. You, you know that there's, there's life is on the line. And when life is on the line, you, you look at things seriously. You take them seriously. You're ready to fight. You're ready to deal with what is important. If you don't think that you're living in a war, you're going to take things very cavalier. It's no big deal. Oh, don't, be, don't make such a big deal about that. When there are sins that Satan is trying to hook you on, like the fishermen, and he wants to try to drag you into a place that you never dreamed that you would go. You just never dreamed. I can't believe. You, you hear people say, I can't believe it led to this. I never would have imagined this would have happened. Well, how did you get there? It did not start that week. It started previously with a bait that was put in the water, right? James 1, you know the verse. Let me, let me read this real quick. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sinclair Ferguson, and I, I don't think I'm exaggerating. I'll have to go back and check. He, wrote a, he has a great sermon on YouTube. I think it's just called Temptation. I think it's what the name of the sermon. You should look it up. Sinclair Ferguson, Temptation, a wonderful sermon that he gave at Alistair Begg's church a few years ago. But he talked about a man who had, had a son, and I guess his son was going to uh, sort of inherit his father's fishing equipment. And so his father was a devout fisherman. He went, into, he went in to find his fishing supplies, and he said there were, I don't think I'm, I think this is correct. I didn't write it down. There were 25 fishing poles, and I believe he said 25,000 lures. And this guy had this unimaginable collection of lures. And he said, uh, and this made me laugh, he said, he said, Fishermen, he said, you've never met an honest fisherman. They're deceivers, all of them, is what he said. <laughs> he said, you've never, he said, no honest man has ever caught a fish in a river. That's what Sinclair said. So what, you, you need these lures, right? Well, why does this man have literally thousands of lures? Because he's an expert fisherman. He's been doing this his entire adult life, even into childhood. He's done this for decades. This man knows what he's doing. He knows the best time of day to be in the water. He knows where the fish are most likely to gather. He knows when they're going to be most hungry. Right, he knows exactly the moment to be there. And guess what? He knows exactly what kind of fish he's looking for. And he goes and looks. He's got a hundred lures for this kind of fish. And he seeks out the exact right one for this water at this moment, at this time. He puts, it on the bait, he puts the bait on. He throws it out there into the water, casts it out into the water, and he waits. And the fish is swimming, having no idea that there's a life and death struggle about to go on around this fish. This fish is just having a good old day, looking for some free food in the water. No big deal, nothing to worry about. And it sees this amazing thing, this attractive object dangling there. It looks good. It's desirable to the eyes, as Eve might say. Desirable, delightful. This thing looks great. It's a good thing. And the fish, having been deceived by the bait, goes up and bites down. And as soon as that fish bites down, this painful, sharp hook goes straight through the side of its mouth, and suddenly it's getting pulled in the direction it did not want to go. 
It's getting yanked in a direction it does not want to go. The fish may be bleeding a little. There's, you're getting tugged through the water. The fish does not know what's happening now, and it's getting pulled in a direction it cannot stop. It cannot turn around, and all of a sudden, the fish is pulled up out of the water, and the fish is now gone. Now, what has happened here? What's happened is the expert fisherman knows exactly what deceptive lure to use. Now, listen, Satan is not omniscient nor omnipresent. Satan does not know everything, and Satan is not everywhere present. But Satan is extraordinarily powerful and knowledgeable, and Satan's been doing this tempting thing for thousands and thousands of years. Satan is an expert at temptation, and so are his demons who follow him. And Satan knows, at least demons are aware, I am sure, of believers in this room. And demons who are following Satan know, okay, I know the best moment to go after this person. I've followed the patterns of their life. I know the best moment when they're most susceptible to sin. It might be when they're tired. It might be when they're lonely. It might be when they're worn out. It might be when they're feeling great about themselves. Everything's going really well. Whatever the moment is when you're most susceptible, there's a studying. They, they know this is, this is the time. And here's the temptation I know. They're not looking for it. They're not waiting for it. This is the temptation right now that's going to get them. And they, they drop it into the water, and you, perhaps unsuspecting, see this thing that is attractive to your eyes. It captures you by the imagination, and before you know it, a sin is being committed. Now, if you take notes, I just want to give you six words. They're from Sinclair Ferguson. You don't have to write these down if you don't want to, but if you want to, these are six words from Sinclair Ferguson. He expands on them in his message. I won't do that for long now, but I just want to give you these six words, or excuse me, five words, just five words. And this is the order in which he says, according to James 1, temptation always happens. Sometimes it happens in an instant. Sometimes it happens over months, but this is how temptation works, according to James 1, Five words, they all end with I-O-N. Here we go. Number one is attraction. All temptation begins with attraction, often through the eyes or something, through the senses. There's attraction of some kind. Number two, there is deception. There is deception. Just like that, that lure hanging there in the water, there's, there's attraction, there's deception. And then there is preoccupation. So first, something's attractive. It might be someone's car. It might be someone's house. It might be whatever it could be, someone's job, someone's career, someone's position. Whatever it is, it's attractive. And it might be a good thing. Often it is a good thing. But you're attracted, and the attraction quickly, you're deceived. You think, oh, I really need that. I want that. That's something you're suddenly coveting, right? It's happening. There's preoccupation. You can't stop thinking about it. Number four, there is conception. Desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. In other words, when sinful desire starts to conceive, it turns into sinful actions, outward actions that are wrong. So conception number four and five, finally, subjugation. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I thought of uh, in the book of Proverbs... Remember the story of the young man who's simple and foolish and the, the adulterous woman in Proverbs 7? I'm not going to read the whole story. Just listen to the end of that. So that young man is naive. He's not expecting he's in a war. He is attracted to this woman. He's deceived by this woman. Suddenly, before long, he, he, he is, uh, he is he's caught. And listen to the words, Proverbs 7:21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. Listen, 
he does not know that it will cost him his life. He does not know that it will cost him his life. Last part of the message here briefly is just understanding a little bit more about temptation, understanding more about temptation. You, you've probably heard this quote. I don't think it comes from a Christian originally, but I still think it, it's, it's worth uh, mentioning. Alistair Begg reminded me of this, and, and you've all heard it probably, but it's true. Remember this, sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an action and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. Think about that. A thought can turn into an action. An action can turn into a habit. A habit determines your character, and your character determines your whole life. It determines the future of your life. So we need to take the beginnings of sin and temptation with utter seriousness, and I believe that's what Jesus is telling us to do in this verse. A couple other things here. Every temptation seems like at the bottom is doubting something about the goodness of God. Just remind you of some obvious ones we all know. I mentioned Eve. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he also ate. Remember, Satan's temptation was, did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Remember, that was his opening line. Did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Well, of course, that's not what God said. God said you shouldn't eat from one out of what? A thousand, ten thousand trees? There's only one you can't eat from. Every other tree is, yes, it's open, it's free. God only limited one tree out of who knows how many. But Satan, his question implies that God is stingy or not good. Did God really say you can't eat from any of these amazing trees? Well, that's not quite. So Satan's temptation begins with questioning God's goodness and his character. And before long, he says, trust what you can see with your eyes. Don't trust what God has said. Trust what you can see. Don't trust what you have heard. Right? What, what God has told us comes in through our ears and we hear God's word. But that competes with what our eyes see. And the question is, what is going to get the upper hand? Is what we see with our eyes or what we hear from God with our ears? Which one is ultimately going to win out in the end? Turn with me to the right to Romans 13. Romans chapter 13. And I'll close with this passage. I'm sure I've mentioned this in the past. St. Augustine from back uh, many centuries ago in the early church, uh, his, his life, as you, as you may know, was known for very strong immorality. Uh, he was living with a woman he wasn't married with for, for quite a while. His, his mother had been praying for him for his conversion for many years. He was well into his adult life, and he was beginning to be tormented by his sin. And he was thinking pretty deeply about the Bible, and he had a collection with him of Paul's letters collection, a bound copy of Paul's letters that he'd been reading some. And he said that he started having this moment where the temptation would get so strong, he thought, I can't let go of my sins. He, said he had this picture of his sins almost like a, personified as a person looking at him saying, never again, 
Never again will you have me? Are you going to cut me off forever? Never get to enjoy the pleasures of this sin ever again? He said, I couldn't bear the thought of losing my sin forever, uh, to, to cut it off forever, which is what repentance demanded. And so he was agonizing. He went out behind his house where he was with a friend, and he was in a garden, and he sat down, and he said the flow of tears started to flow on his face. And he said he was actually pounding his head uh, on the temples with his hands. He was in such a, he was just stuck between temptation and deliverance. Which do I really want? And he couldn't decide. And as you probably remember, in a nearby home, a young child, maybe two or three years old, was singing a song, Tole Lege, Tole Lege, which means take and read, take and read. And he said, I had never heard that as a children's song before. So he said, he just said, I'm going to go ahead and take this collection of Paul's letters, and I'm just going to flip it open. I'm going to read whatever verse I happen to land on. Now, let me tell you, that is not a way you should, <laughs> you should read your Bible. I am not recommending that as a Bible reading method. But this time, something amazing did, did happen. He ran back over to his collection of Paul's letters. He was torn in temptation. He flipped it open, and his eyes fell on Romans 13. Look at verses 12 to 14. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Can you imagine? Augustine said he closed the collection of Paul's letters his tears stopped flowing. He said, I had no need to read further. And in that very moment, he repented of his sin and trusted in Christ. And his, his whole life was changed from that point forward. So let me say to you, if you're a person who you'd say, listen, whether you've claimed to be a Christian or not, or whatever it may be, if you feel like right now, temptation truly, quietly, perhaps secretly, has you by the throat. You, you cannot get away from whatever this temptation is that just has you right now. You, you don't know any way out. I'm going to give you a moment to pray quietly at the end here, but I want you to know, Jesus died on the cross to pay the full debt of the sin of all who will turn and trust Him, and Jesus is alive right now at the right hand of the Father, and He will send His Holy Spirit right now to renew and revive. He will completely change everything in you and give you the desire for holiness and for Christ-likeness that only He can offer, and that He truly can lead you not into temptation, but deliver you from evil. Let's bow our heads together. And I'm just going to give you a moment to pray quietly, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll sing again. Heavenly Father, I pray for everyone in this room with various temptations that come and go throughout life in this fallen world. God, I pray for each and every one of us that you would lead us not into temptation, that you would deliver us from the evil one and from all evil in our lives. God, expose the hook underneath the bait. Show us how wicked and depraved sin is, how sin will always want to take us further than we plan to go and keep us longer than we plan to stay. Sin always aims for the utmost in every single one of its movements and temptation. Every lustful glance would be adultery if it could. Every moment of irrational anger would be murder. Every moment of unbelief would become atheism. Lord, any one of our temptations were it to get all that it wants would drag us into apostasy today. Show us, God, the seriousness of fighting sin. Not to earn our salvation, but because we have been so radically saved by Christ.
God, I pray that the cross would dominate our horizon, that we would not question your goodness because you have proven your goodness and your love on the cross by sending your Son to take our place and to bear our judgment on the tree so that we don't have to. God, for anyone trapped in sin, God, I pray that they would confess it to a friend, that they would get freedom from it even now, and that you would give them the joy of the freedom from sin and the joy and the peace of true godliness and Christ-likeness that only you can provide. And we pray this all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.